Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I was saddened this week to learn about the passing of Dr. Eli Esty. A couple of colleagues emailed me and messaged me about it, and one of them said, I thought you would want to know. And indeed, I would. I, of course, uh, think very highly of Professor Eli Esty. He was a faculty member of the University of Washington. He was an expert in leukemia, and he has been a past guest of Plenary Session. And later on in this podcast, I'm going to re-air the interview when he came by to Portland, Oregon, and uh, chatted with me for, for about an hour or so. Professor Esty was... He was a different kind of oncologist. He was the guy who went to the microphone after the speaker and asked the tough questions. And boy, did he ask tough questions. His questions would gradually show that the speaker didn't always know what they were talking about. And Professor Esty often knew a thing or two about leukemia. He was the product of a different world. He trained in oncology in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He did his undergraduate at Yale University in 1968, his MD at Hopkins in 72. And he did so much of his training at the MD Anderson Cancer Center where he worked under some of the giants, the pioneers of chemotherapy, but he also pushed in his own direction and he became a professor at MD Anderson. He led many, many studies in leukemia. When I reflect back on Eli Estes' writings, I put it always in three buckets. You know, he did the clinical trial work that so many people do today, although it was in a different era. There wasn't the widespread use of and ability of the pharmaceutical industry to craft the research agenda. This was the time when oncologists set the research agenda. He did the trials. He also did the basic science. You know, SD was on a number of publications that are really important, basic science papers in leukemia, but he did something else. He did the third bucket. He did the clinical correlate, the clinical prognostic factor, the risk factor, the way you might think about a surrogate, the statistical interpretation, the treatment strategy. Eli Esty did a little bit of all of that. He did the papers that made you think about leukemia differently. And that was what I admired about him more than anything. Those papers that change the way we look at things you took for granted in leukemia. I think about Dr. Esty and people like him and when they trained, it was a different world of oncology. You wouldn't go to a university and spend a decade and then find yourself as the external vice president of a company. You couldn't 
run a lab and have a spin-off company that made it big when it was acquired by another company. There just wasn't that industry presence. So you went into oncology because you really cared about cancer patients. You knew you were there to do good and you weren't going to stay to do well. It was a different world. It was a world where if you went into academics, you did so not because you expected somebody to write your papers for you or give you your slide deck before you went up on the stage, but because you yourself wanted to think critically and ask the tough questions. People have said so many things about Eli Esty. They call him an iconoclast, a skeptic, brilliant and original thinker. All of that is true, but a colleague of mine texted me. She wrote, it's a loss for people who liked common sense. And that was what he was more than anything. He was a guy who brought an unflinching and unyielding common sense to all problems in acute myeloid leukemia. The last thing I'll say before we cut to the interview with Eli Esty, which was recorded a couple years ago, is every time he met me, he told me a story. He told me a story about somebody in oncology in the 70s or 80s who had some idea, who pushed some school of thought that people mocked, they gave pushback to, they criticized fiercely, they hated on this person. But ultimately, as time went on, that person was vindicated and he admired their courage for pushing on it so hard when it was so deeply unpopular. And eventually, I started to figure out why he made it a point to tell me these stories. I think he was trying to give me some encouragement. And so I was always grateful to have dinner with him. I was always grateful to talk to him on the phone. I'm going to miss him, Eli SD. This episode's in your honor, and we're going to play the interview, which I think is uh, as good as it was the day it was recorded. Professor SD. So I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Eli SD. Dr. S.D. is professor of medicine at the University of Washington Fred Hutch Cancer Center. He is an expert in leukemia. Uh, Dr. S.D. has a long career in leukemia. He was on the faculty at the MD Anderson Cancer Center for 30 years and then about a decade ago uh, made the switch to the University of Washington. Um, it's a pleasure to have you with us here on the podcast. My pleasure. You know, you did your fellowship at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, and that was in the late 1970s. And I asked you yesterday, um, you know, how did you sort of go down the path of becoming an expert in leukemia? And you talked about the influence of, of one gentleman, Emil Freirich. Um, can you tell us about that? Um, Dr. Freirich um, was a iconoclast. He believed in criticizing he, things that he thought were objectively incorrect. Mm -hmm. uh, he often was not the most discreet in the way he went about things. Um, I think his career, at least in administration, suffered because of that. But I think his idea of, of questioning things and his belief that if all you ever do is all you've ever done and all you'll ever get is all you've ever gotten. That belief, I think, was really um, instrumental to the attitudes that many people who train there under him carried forward. By that you mean in order to make progress against cancer, you have to be willing to experiment. Yes. And, I mean, Dr. Kantarjan trained with him. Um, Michael Keating trained with him, who was the first person to use fluidarabine in CLL. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he was the first person to pioneer combination chemotherapeutic strategies. Dr. Freireich, absolutely. He was the first to use platelet transfusions. Um, and that, I think you can see that um, willingness um, to do things differently, oftentimes incorrectly, but you can see that in, in all the people or many of the people who train there. Dr. Barlogy was somebody else. Who, oh, Bart Barlogy. Yeah, he trained there He, uh-huh. he you know, with the double transplants or uh-huh. whatever he was they did for myeloma. To, Absolutely. To try different things. So they're all very, very similar in, in that sense. Um, uh, so more than anything, you learned from him the importance of... Um, being willing to challenge the status quo, correct. being willing to to take a leap and to see if what you're doing is better than what you have now. Right. And, 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 you know, and I think, yeah, I mean, so for example, we never gave people seven plus three and we still don't. And I think what he said is, well, if you benefit some from regular dose ARC, there's a very good chance you'll benefit more from high-dose ARC if you're sensitive. Why would I then give 7 plus 3? And that was the philosophy that led to the development of FLAG and FLAG-IDA, mm-hmm. um, which there are some studies show or have more anti-leukemia effect than mm-hmm. 7 plus 3. Mm-hmm. And um, he also said, well, if your prognosis is terrible with 7 plus 3, why would we give it to you? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, um, and which I think made sense to a lot of people. and But mainly it was the willingness to try new things. And there was a certain edginess to him, and he could be very difficult. You know, today, the way he would treat people mm-hmm. would not be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he would always say, you know, to me, you know, you're really stupid. And um, um, uh, why don't you take a gun and kill the patient? Oh, boy. And But then after that, he would come to his office, and he said, you know, well, I only criticize people who I think, you know, or have some hope. I see. And then you'd feel really good. Wow. And um, But, you know, a lot of that you couldn't do today. Right. But you could see some of that in this talk this morning. You mm. could see his influence, not in the exact topics, but in the philosophy. You yeah, certainly could see that. I absolutely, I absolutely and, could. Um, in, ter- in terms of the willingness to question, right. Accept the dogma, right? Exactly, and 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 the, yeah, and and to go, you know, perhaps into areas that are politically incorrect. And yeah. um, but I think, um, I think, you know, there's a need for that in medicine as there is in all fields. Yeah, and I think uh, there is. Um, uh, so much guarding and, and lack of direct speak uh, on many of these topics. Um, but, you know, I think listeners who are interested in sort of the culture in, in the 1960s and 70s in oncology uh, should check out Vincent DeVita's book, Death of Cancer, because he kind of portrays it very interestingly, mm-hmm. the culture of working at the clinical center building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never read it, but I've, and I've only read, I've read The Emperor of All Maladies, uh-huh. the chapter about Dr. Frawark, and I thought it was a very good chapter. Very good, yeah. yeah. And I think it's an excellent book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd like the Davida book because Davida, of course, you know he's 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 uh, he's older now. Yeah. He's got nothing left to hide, and he's yeah, willing to tell exactly. it as it was. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now let me ask you this: You raised something that I thought was a very astute way of thinking about novel anti-cancer drugs, um, and I'll just unpack it a little bit. It's thinking about the years of life lost and how much that drug restores. So by this we mean, um, I use an, I use a very recent example I read in the JCL. Um, there's a very elegant paper that came out of Sweden uh, that said if a man at the age of 55 was diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia in 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000, 2010, um, how many years of life did that man lose? 
and how did it change over time? And so what you see is in, in 1970, that man, by getting that diagnosis, lost about 22 years of life. He had a life expectancy with 22 years and he's gonna live three to four years with CML. Um, by the late 1990s and early 2000s, as we moved into Gleevec, that gap rapidly started closing and now the man loses two years of life. So he's gained 20 of those years back. And that's a testament to, I think we'll all agree, imatinib is very useful in CPCML. No doubt about it. And that's a testament to how good that drug is. It restores 90% of life expectancy. Now the point you're making is that many AML drugs, let's talk about the people who are afflicted with AML. Um, too often they're elderly, they're older. AML is a disease of the elderly. Median age is 72, 73, 74, something like that. Um, you're nodding your head. Um, and, um, and, and what your point was is if you look at an actuarial table, you will see that a 72-year-old man has something like 13 or 14 years of life expectancy left. Yes. Um, of course, that's longer than the general population because people may not know, but as someone gets older, their life expectancy is actually higher than the general population because it's removed all the people who've passed away untimely. Right. Okay. It so, proportionally but it's about, increases. Yeah, right, right. Proportionally increases. Right. So it's about um, 13 years of life. And one of the astute points I think you are making is many of these drugs that we're up in the plenary session of the national meeting celebrating, getting standing ovations, are only adding back nine months, 12 months, 15 months, which is less than 10% of the years of life lost. Right. And when you look at it that way, it's not that you're trying to disparage the drug, it's just pointing out that there is a lot of room for improvement. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on the p-value and the sacrosanct p equals 0.05, and mm -hmm. Dr. Freiberg could always tell us stories about that came into being and, and, uh, and stuff. But they focus on this, well, it's better statistically, but they don't focus on the other question is, well, medically, what does it mean? And as you just pointed out, oftentimes it doesn't mean as much as it's purported to, uh, to, to maybe mean. And, and, and what I really think is that one of our big problems is part of the human condition is we have such hubris that we are really unwilling to acknowledge that in whatever number of years it will be, I'll be dead, but people will look at people like me who are felt to know something about the disease in the same way that all of us look at the people who put leeches on George Washington. Right. Leeches. What was wrong with these people? And today and, and, and in a few years, let's say targeted therapy, these people had no idea what they're talking about. Right. But it's the best they could do then. But not to acknowledge those limitations is, I think, really dangerous. Right. Because you begin to believe, people tend to believe what they want to believe. And I don't think that allows them to objectively criticize what they're doing. They can't be self-critical. Mm. And everything, particularly with the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, ads on TV, ask your doctor about this, everything is this relentless story of progress. And nobody would gainsay that there's been progress. But I think it's important to keep it in perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... Um maybe more than at any other time, the, the hype, the expectation, the heightened um, uh, promise of novel drugs is higher and higher, uh, in part because it's become very, very lucrative business. And uh, no the, the industry has a strong incentive um, to, to sell the glass half full, uh, even in this case, if the glass is only 5% you know, full. Right, uh, yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a difference between losing 98% of your life expectancy and 92% or something in that in that area. Mm -hmm. So it's 
not even half full, but that that's correct. And um, and I think it's not only for, you know the the drug companies, but I think it's also younger physicians because I think um, uh, they see their path to success through this. Um, when I was their age, well, there were no drugs. I mean, some, but it wasn't mm-hmm. this. And so your career was a more traditional academic one. Okay, we're going to look at a problem and we're going to see, um, okay, what does it mean if you have 20% blasts on day 14? And you would have a database and you would look at that and you'd write a paper. Um, but that is, I think, increasingly less common because it's easier, I think, and, and, and people see it as more important in coming up with new drugs. And um, and I think people can make their careers that way much more easily than they can the other way. And if I were, that was the situation when I was young, I would have done the same thing, obviously. But, you know, I think that's unfortunate. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I guess what you're alluding to is, um, you know, when you were making your, er- your early start in a career, uh, the skills that you needed to publish any papers or to have any recognition in the field is the ability to collect data meticulously come up with hypotheses by yourself or with the close or with the you know yeah. the, the the a mentor or two yeah. but very sort of a close knit group of people mm-hmm. uh, analyze your findings mm-hmm. report those findings mm-hmm. uh, and and what's been replaced that model of you know how many many oncologists of a generation came to be well known has been replaced with a modern model which is that there are so many new drugs being approved that people want to attach themselves to a drug i'm the person who brought the idh1 drug to market mm-hmm. um and then one may ask like you know what did that one person do for that drug well they served as the pi on the clinical study uh they have their name on the paper and it's in that first authorship spot mm-hmm. Uh, they may not have written much of the paper that may have been written by the medical writer. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't collect the data themselves. Um, that's been farmed out to teams of people. Mm-hmm. The analysis was, of course, done on the company's back end mm-hmm. uh, by the company's analyst. Um, the figures were presented by the company. They were mm-hmm. chosen by the company. The first author may not have even had independent access to the data. Um, but the first author is the one that's going to get there on the podium at ASCO or ASH and give the plenary. Uh, the first author is the one that's going to have this you know, badge of honor. Um, what do you think about this new model? Um, <laughs> You're in a safe space, Dr. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, well, I think it leaves something to be desired. That's one way to put it. I think yeah. it, 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 you know, it, 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 it discourages critical thinking. It discourages it, yeah. It discourages critical thinking, and um, it discourages independent thinking. Yeah. And um, I, I think, personally, I find that regrettable. Yeah, and 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 um, and the, what, the way you put it, I think, in your talk was you said that you're afraid that there's a generation of oncologists growing up who are afraid of questioning authority. That it, it, you know, to to play this game, to be successful at getting your name attached to a drug, um, the absolute best thing you can do is play ball with every you know constituency you meet, not offend anybody, um, rave about every new drug, uh, be supportive of everything, ignore the limitations, and tout the positives. You're nodding. You agree that? Yes, I I think I mean I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean. Um... Uh, everything is now a team, and our team did this, and um, yeah. um, they use these buzzwords, and um, that, that really come from, you know, marketing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a uh, uh, marketing has really become increasingly influential, and I mean, 
I can't blame these people for doing that. I mean, I would do the same thing if I were them. Um, would you? Oh, it's so hard to know. But um, if you were a junior person coming up in leukemia now, how would you? Or what would be your? You have trainees, of course, many who've worked with you. Yeah, I how mean, how do you advise them? Well, we tr- we have a database, and we try to write papers based on that. For example, one of the things I talked about this morning is. We don't really even know what proportion of our patients are eligible for trials to mm-hmm. begin with. Right. That's an important question. Um, so we try to do things like that. One of the things that you talked about this morning that I thought was really interesting was a project where, um, you know, and, and this goes to the critical thinking idea, which is that people say a lot of the time that um, when it comes to deciding if a patient is able to handle uh, G-Clam, Flagida, 7 plus 3, intensive induction chemotherapy, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the word intensive, but induction chemotherapy, um, one sort of philosophy is that no one is better than the doctor at eyeballing the patient saying fit, unfit, fit, unfit. And, And you thought, okay, let's put that to the test. Is it in fact the case that doctors are able to make that judgment call? And you compared, in a PCORI-funded grant, the ability of doctors to prognosticate about two people versus the ability for a validated scoring system to prognosticate. And then, of course, we you use the statistic, the area under the receiver-operator characteristic curve. Uh, listeners will, of course, know that a 0.5 is a lousy test. It has no discrimination coin flip, right. It's no better than a coin flip. 50% of the time, the person you thought who was going to have the event over the person you thought wouldn't have the event, it was the other way around. So it's no better than a coin flip. But doctor's gestalt was 0.61, which is really not much better than a coin flip. And the validated scale was 0.76 or something like that. So you were able to show this with your um, with, with someone who works with you, who's a, Mohammed, who, right. uh, a, a excellent junior faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, but But I guess the reason I bring this up is this is the kind of what was once the norm would be for junior faculty to try to come up with these kind of clever ways of analyzing novel problems. That is really fallen out of favor. Um, there's not much incentive for that. And, and I, I, I arguably would say that I don't hear people advising junior people to tack, take these questions. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, we're in favor of doing studies. I mean, because it is a way to advance people's careers. But there are problems that we face. We see a, you know, fair number of people with AML, but um, oftentimes the studies to be completed quicker are done at several places. And um, not only is there limited intellectual uh, contribution, but younger people, the way their careers are made is they first author papers. And a lot of times these authorships are decided a priori will put the most patients on. And so a lot of times in these multi-center studies, our younger faculty would be third author, or fourth author, or fifth author, or something like that, which is not best for their career. So as much as possible, you try to do investigator-initiated trials, if possible, with drug companies, because they have new drugs. But if not, well, see what we can come up with that is different on its own. And, um, but the limitations in that are the support because the company might be willing or not willing to support the study. We've had lots of instances where um, just the other day we were interested in looking at 
a society of venetoclax in people who exclusively had measurable residual disease. And they said, oh, sorry, somebody else is doing the study. So, um, um, so that's, you know, that's hard to do. And what makes it even harder is if we do it, I mean, we could give a society of venetoclax, presumably, if the insurance allowed, I mean, I don't know. But even if we could, then the problem would be the support for the study. Because as you know, these days, they're really onerous requirements mm -hmm. for reporting. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that you see this, and I hear about this all the time, the younger faculty members, we don't have um, enough support for them. So they have to do all these monitoring requirements themselves. You ask yourself, is this the best use of someone's time to try to distinguish between grade two and grade one nausea and vomiting? No, not for a younger faculty member. I don't believe that is the best use of their time. Mm -hmm. But without support, it's hard to do. So we're, you know, and I'm sure other people have thought of the same thing, of saying to our place, um, would you support trials? Mm -hmm. um, we'd like to think that having the trials brings in more patients. Mm -hmm. It's an incentive um, the institution. And we know the number, yeah, yeah, the institution benefits from that. The transplant service benefits from that, et cetera. Everybody benefits from that. If they were to support us, then we wouldn't necessarily just have to do these multi-center studies mm -hmm. um, um, for which we don't get credit uh, or enough credit for the younger people who advance their career. We could do more things ourselves. Uh -huh. So whether that will eventuate, I don't know. But I think that's, you know, many years ago, um, it may have been Dr. Fryer, I Dr. Fryer wrote something called, you know, the clinical researcher an embattled species. <laughs> and I think it's or an endangered species. Uh -huh. And I think that's really true today, too, is that to me... Independent clinical research. Yeah. yeah. To me is, you know, um, there's so much emphasis on this <laughs> bench to bedside research. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, you know, it's a buzzword. Uh, it's a buzzword. That's exactly right. And, you know, um, nobody would denigrate that. I mean, you'd have to be a total anti-intellectual to say that's not important. But, you know, I still think there's room for <clears throat> the other way around. Mm -hmm. Careful clinical observation. Right, and exactly. And careful empirical testing. Right. And one example, and people <laughs> may say, oh, you know, that's outdated. It's 30 years old is, you know, or there are two. One is Atra. Yeah. So when that drug was first reported from China, it was in the late 1980s, and China was not the country that it was today. And there was a lot of um, people were, they were incredible that this result was actually correct. And- That, that it could induce it remissions, right, right? right? But did they already know about retinoic acid receptor fusion? No. no. It, so it was empirically discovered? Yes. Uh, I mean, now it came out of traditional Chinese folk medicine <clears throat> on some ability to differentiate. But, you know, the trials never would have been done based on that. Is that true? Is yes. that it had an origin in Chinese herbal medicine? Yes. In tra traditional, I don't know, herbal, but oh, traditional but yeah, Chinese traditional medicine. medicine. Okay. It really was greeted with, you know, incredulity in the West until the results were confirmed mm -hmm. in France mm -hmm. and a memorial by Dr. Worrell. 
And only later, it was found out why it worked, it disrupted PMLR-AR-alpha. Right. And now, it's often cited as a paradigm, I hate that word, but- Of precision know, medicine. That's right, bench-to-bedside yeah. research. Yeah, it is, yeah. And, but the truth is something In quite different. Yes, yeah. it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. And fludarabine, which even today is used routinely, at least in young people with CLL, it had a very interesting history. It was first used in AML at MD Anderson, and at the doses that you needed to see an anti-AML effect in the bone marrow, the patients would routinely get demyelinization of their brain, and they would get acute multiple sclerosis. That was at a dose of 150 milligrams per meter daily for five days. And so that drug really had no future in that disease, but um, um, Later on, Michael Keating, who was there, said, well, you know, uh, we know we can get 30 milligrams. We did that going up to 150 milligrams. And CLL is a, you know, it's a less proliferative disease than AML. That's, you know, mm-hmm. so let's try it in CLL. That's how fludarabine started in CLL. I see, which but, eventually became FCR. Right. This is an Anderson. That's correct. And Burlex, they, 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 the requirements were less rigorous. So uh-huh. said, okay, yeah, try it. But that totally came from you know, clinical observation. Uh-huh. So again, it's not to um, question the importance of bench-to-bedside research, but you wonder maybe there should be more emphasis on the other. Yeah. And particularly, there are new ways of doing clinical trials that, you know, that I think could be looked at. I think the idea of this phase one, phase two, phase three thing is really silly. I mean, we could get into that, but yeah. I mean, you just for a minute, just think about the three plus three rule. And I think it's, it's I hadn't thought about this till now, but it's sort of symbolic. Because the way that rule works is if two of the first three people have toxicity, that yeah, dose over. is never revisited, right. it's over. But wait a second, what happens if those two people were you know, 70 years old rather than 40 years old? Doesn't okay. that influence it? Right. Of course it does. And people have actually written papers, there's a guy named Rogatko who's published about things that determine toxicity in phase one trials, and dose is not the most important. There right. are other things. Right. They they're all have to have a bilirubin less than two, but within that two, what the bilirubin was? Was it 1.4, 0.8? Same with creatinine. And that's interesting. So the question Absolutely. is, you know, it, it, how reliable is that it's at actually not. getting the MTD? Right, of course, and, and, and it's somebody, not. somebody made the other point to me, which is what about the one out of three that didn't have toxicity? What about that person perhaps Absolutely. being underdosed? Right, exactly. And so, you know, and so people have proposed more intelligent ways of doing these things, but they probably would take more time. Yeah. And the many companies see the purpose of the phase one study is let's just get on to the phase two study. Right. Even if they haven't optimized. Right. Even if even if even if the whole thing is a rope of sand. Right. They never look at it. Right. Um, and if anything in the the changes in the phase one paradigm have gone the other way. How can we do this then less than three plus three patients right. accelerated assignment you know right. designs exactly. and it's just of that it's nature. just it's just a fig leaf really. A, yeah. And you know, I mean the same is true in you know, you could say, well, why don't we monitor response in phase one? Well, because we don't know until we're at the dose that maybe we're too low a dose. Right. But I think it would be really interesting to go and see, okay, how often 
do you see a response at a lower dose at a drug that's eventually proved effective? Maybe it's not the same response as the dose you use, but maybe you saw something. And if you saw nothing in phase one, the phase two was doomed to failure. Hmm. That's a very interesting piece of research to yeah. me, but how are you gonna get that funded? Oh. Nobody will fund that. It's not dealing with you know some gene or something like that. So I think, personally, the NCI is a bit short-sighted in what they fund. Yeah, they move um, from fed to fed. Right. So I think there are lots of things that could be done in the clinical research arena yeah. um, in terms of treating patients. I mean, a lot of things people don't know. I mean, um, um, do you need to do a day 14 marrow? I mean, is there a benefit in measuring using blood rather than marrow to measure MRD? Mm-hmm. And I mean, collecting this data, um, it would help to have money for that. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's difficult to, uh, you know, it's really difficult to get. Yeah, and um, that's I, I think is a problem. Yeah, you're gonna you're about to scoop us on some work we're doing with phase one, phase two trials and oh, dose levels, right. and um, and also looking at uh, of course drugs that lack single agent activity. Yeah, but um, I guess I want to and, and you know talking about dose. What about a drug like gemtuzumab, ugamycin, where we had it on the market nine milligrams per meter squared for a decade, and then only later we learned that that was probably way too much, and it came back on the market after being off the market for seven years uh, or for five years or something like that at three milligrams per meter squared, and that's now the way in which most of us use yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, and that's another question is, you know, that, that that's, I think, that I'm trying to discuss some today is, you know, the, the focus on safety first, and, and, and I mean, nobody would say that's not important, but for a patient with some of these diseases, they're concerned with safety, but they're also concerned with benefit, and they might be willing to accept the 15% or whatever increase in toxicity if it was plausible that this drug was much better than the standard, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. So the focus on safety, I think, has gotten way out of hand. And you can say, yeah, but that reflects the American public and their, you know. Their appetite for risk. Right, their appetite for risk. But I, I think some education might be useful or. Um, because I don't think it's that difficult a concept to understand. Yeah, and I think there's um, recently some some actual polls of the American public and their what they want from drug regulation, and it right. seems like they actually do want more information. Right. Let me ask you this. Now, in your talk today, you were tough on a bunch of drugs. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I've got it right. Uh, all of them. All of them. The venetoclax approval in combination with decitabine and azacitidine, which I've been critical of because it lacks a control arm. You're critical of it for the same reason. There's, it's an uncontrolled study. You're nodding your head. Um, they keep lumping CR and CRI, but CR with incomplete hematopoietic recovery is a different thing than CR. You, you agree? Very plausibly. Yeah, very plausibly. Okay. Um, the drug you're critical of is glass degib, the hedgehog inhibitor, in combination with low-dose ARC against ARC. The point you were making is why isn't it against azacitidine, which would be a more appropriate comparator. You're nodding your head. Yes. Vixios. The problem with Vixios is not necessarily a problem, but, of course, it has no pre-market data for people younger than the age of 60. Correct. And now we're using it almost relentlessly in people below the age of 60. Right. And that's people. the problem with, yeah. with, with, with many of these approvals. I mean... And it's a difficult thing. I mean, I understand the problem that, yes, they're maybe better, maybe, um, but, and we were alluding to this before about the, how much of an improvement are they in an absolute sense. And my fear, you could say you're biased because you spend your life doing these trials, is that 
they will be so widely used in the community that people will be less preferred for trials. And under the false pretense, sorry, that these things are, they're things that they're not. That they're, you know, and, and, and people will believe that they're less intense and intense is bad and they can be outpatients and all this marketing stuff that undoubtedly goes on. And um, maybe they would benefit more from intense therapy. And yes, they may benefit from venetic lax, but as we were saying before, it may be the difference between losing 98% of your life expectancy and 85% of your life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And if we're ever going to get be do better than 85%, well, people have to do trials. You know, and the, the fear is, yeah. is that they won't because they'll be getting venetic lax. See, you make this really... Uh, astute point that I've only heard, I've only read has been made in one other context. Um, there's a wonderful paper that talked about, I think in Nature Reviews, Clinical Oncology, the approval for liposomal irinotecan in second-line pancreatic cancer, which has a very modest to marginal improvement in overall survival. Um, arguably, we wonder if li- if it needs to be liposomal, what if we just use full theory, which a lot of people were using, and, and there's phase two data to support that. And one of the things the authors of this summary said, which I believe was Dr. Bates and Foho, was that when you take a branded $100,000 a year medication and you put it on the market, uh, it has, in addition to the way it's, it's supposed to be used, it's got, of course, some off-label use, but it's so aggressively marketed that what it does is a patient population that might be ideally best served actively seeking clinical trials now has a drug that's being heavily marketed to them and many patients who would be otherwise trial eligible would rather take this drug off you know take this approved drug in the marketplace without any sort of following of their outcomes or anything like that and so they actually say it talks about one of the unintended consequences of marginal drug approvals is it erodes the ability to conduct clinical trials and that's the point that you're making I think with some of these approvals right I mean, it's difficult because, you know, on the one hand, yes, you do want the drugs approved, but you don't want them to be taken as such that trials stop. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing. And one proposal, I'm sure it's not unique with me, is there has to be some compulsory reevaluation of the drug. Yeah. That, okay, you know, um, okay, two years have gone by. I mean, the median censoring time in the asocytidine thing is only about 18 months. Right. And we know that the death rate from AML doesn't really begin to decrease until three years have gone by. So Mm -hmm. 18 months is not really that long. Um, Many studies have three or four year median follow-ups. And um, um, so to me, there would have to be some kind of compulsory thing um, where the drug company is told, okay, you need to conduct further studies and they have to be done in people that are not included in the original study. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has to be more follow-up so we know, in fact, how good the drug is. And one such study is a study that you're trying to get launched, which is you want to know, Aza plus venetoclax, what is the response rate in people who are truly unfit for other therapy based right. on a validated score and not the doctor's right. eyeball? Right. It's not perfect, but, you know, but, um, you know, is is And tell us about that study that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, so I always think about my career. A lot of it's been spent with these models, and <laughs> it'd be really, it'd be really ironic, if not sad, if 
the physician, and I've heard people say this, I can look at the patient, Eli, and I can do as well as this model you spent all this time doing. I don't need the model. And in fact, we know that physicians believe that. I, in the talk, I alluded to this AML-14 study in, in the UK, and the idea was to take people over 65 and randomize them between intense therapy and less intense therapy, and then within the less intense therapy was hydrea versus low-dose ARC. And only 1% of the patients were randomized between the less intense and the less intense because mm -hmm. the doctors a priori judged whether what they were. Mm -hmm. And our own experience, we have a study where we randomized people between less intense and more intense G-clam, and maybe 10 or 15% of the physicians and patients are willing to participate. They believe that they know which is better for the patient a priori. I see. And yet, there's this very interesting thing that says that the decision whether to give people intense or less intense therapy has a lot to do with the characteristics of a physician. Mm. A man is more likely to propose more intense therapy. Somebody's more willing to take, incur risks, financial risks in their own lives are more willing to prescribe intense therapy. And then there's the thing that you alluded to with the AUC comparison. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that's very plausible that many of these people are fit for intense therapy um, and are not given it. And conversely, the original study did not include people who were, who were uh, really unfit. And that's the genesis of a South Sound study. And it takes place in South Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to take people who, by this model, mm -hmm. as imperfect as it is, mm -hmm. maybe halfway between a coin flip and certainty, it's still not far from certainty, mm -hmm. um, but it's still better than the guess. Um, and to give them the acecytidine, the menetoclax, in the same way as reported in the recent study in blood. And, By um, Dinardo and colleagues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we would um, um, do it as far as possible as the way that study was done. Mm -hmm. But we would not be prescriptive. The doctors would, they would treat the patients as they would any other patient. And we would see what the CR rate was. And we have this very um, stopping rule that you would stop if after the 15 patients, it might take a year to accumulate, if only one or none of them had a CR. And if that were to happen, the likelihood that this drug would truly be 40% mm -hmm. is vanishingly small. Mm -hmm. Because we didn't want the study where people would say, well, you know, you could have really easily missed the 40% response right. rate. Right. So now you can say, Shouldn't you stop earlier? Do you really need to be, you know, 99% certain that it's not 40%? But we think, and that's a very good question. And, but for this purpose, we think it's important. So we don't want somebody to say, yeah, but you know, easily could have missed the 40% response rate. And one can imagine you're gonna be up against, uh, if it is the case that in a, when a validated score is used to decide if somebody's unfit and venetoclax does not have the response rate that was touted in the study, um, I would say the opposition to that belief is gonna be very, very strong and determined and financially of funded. Of course, and yeah. But, so you need certainty on your side. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, no. I mean, as that's as you clearly the case, yeah. which is the reason that the company has been uh, not terribly enthusiastic about funding it, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and I can understand that. But that doesn't mean that I don't think it's the right study to do. I mean, I think it is the right study to do. Mm -hmm. And um, um, Companies don't fund studies that erode their own market share. <laughs> no. 
And, and that's the no. problem, I think, in the field is that, um, you know, we're now at a time where 90% of, of studies in oncology are industry-sponsored. And, and people say that isn't that good that we have, you know, a bunch of different cooperative groups and the industry funding. And I say, of course, you know, we, we want lots of people um, doing no research. Question. No question. Then nobody else can fund it. Right. Uh, right. There's a, yeah, nobody else can fund it. But one of the challenges is um, there are many, many important clinical questions that the the public that, you know, researchers, that patients, we need the answer to, and they're not going to be funded by the industry. No, of course uh, not. Yeah. No. I mean, and these are not deep questions. These are questions that would occur to any patient. <laughs> right. How do you know right. I'm really unfit? How do you know I wouldn't benefit from something else? Right. And as you pointed out in the thing that you wrote in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, without randomization, it's really difficult to know. And, 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 and the reason they might choose not to randomize is they say, well, there's nothing to randomize them against. They're not, we're doing them a favor. There's nothing else they could receive. Mm-hmm. But whether that's true is not necessarily the case. People are saying that we are living in a time that is the renaissance of AML drugs. I've heard that word, yes. And what would you say um, when, you know, we see Medici, we see uh, Michelangelo here <laughs> and uh, Botticelli, well, Carvaggio. Uh, we're in the renaissance well, of AML drugs. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I think there's been substantial progress that's made in my 40 years, 41 years. But I would say that a lot of that has been with supportive care. I think that's been the major... Um, uh, Antifungal. Yes. And there are new drugs, and there's no question that they've improved things that you can demonstrate in a randomized trial, at least in some patients. Adding gemtuzumab is beneficial. Adding mitostorin is beneficial. But as you pointed out, the, the absolute benefits are probably not what you might want to call it a renaissance. And um, I think a lot of it... Uh, reflects the climate of deregulation in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that these drugs, I think, are being approved. Yes, they're not they're plausibly better, but I think there's no question that the same drugs wouldn't have been approved a few years ago. And in your paper, one of the things you pointed out was clofarabine. I remember yeah. it well. It was mm-hmm. an MD Anderson drug developed by doc, at, at Southern Research Institute in Birmingham, Alabama, and really brought forward by Dr. Kandarjan. And that drug was not approved because um, one of the reasons was, as you astutely pointed out, that it was clear that maybe 20% of the people later went on to get intensive therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe now the clofarabine improved them so that now they were fit for intensive therapy. That's one possibility. That's one possibility, but the more likely possibility is that they were fit all along. Right. And so that drug was not approved. Mm-hmm. But my guess is that if that drug came to the market today, it would be approved. It would be. That's my guess, too. And yeah. um, the bar has changed. That's the, the right. It's not that the renaissance. Yes. <laughs> Nobody would say that there are not many more interesting drugs. That's only a fool would say that. But the question is, is that the whole story? Right. Uh, and what I think is that there are many people who would like you to believe that is the whole story. And, you know, it's, it's, it's marketing and we're making great progress and drug companies are great and all this kind of stuff. Instead of looking at another possibility that, yes, there's progress, but it's not as much as people would like to imagine, mm-hmm. you know, compared to what you were talking about with Gleevec, where you, you know, you yeah. gain 90% of your right. life expectancy. Right. You gain 10% of what you otherwise gain. Um, it's not that. And, um, you know, and... 
maybe five or ten years ago, the same drugs wouldn't have been approved. I don't think you would have approved the drug without a randomized study. Yeah. I, so to the claim renaissance, um, you would say um, uh, there there's some good painters out there, but we're also willing to hang up a lot more on our walls. Yes. Uh, yeah. Curb your enthusiasm. Curb, yes, yeah. but that's a, about the paint. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I guess willing you, to hang up a lot more on the walls is that's very true. Um, you you alluded to this in the talk, but you made the point that um, you know uh, when you speak about sort of this, it, it's broader than drug regulation. Is I think one of the astute yes. points you made that this is sort of a deregulatory environment. Yes. And we just heard that um, the FAA asked. Boeing. Yes. Uh, you know, you you inspect your own plane. Yes. And you just let us know yes. if it's safe to fly. Yes. And that's uh, I think that yes. some people would say is a problematic system. Right. Yeah. I think so. And, and and you know I think if you look um, beginning around 1908 with the financial crisis, I think you know financial regulation obviously got a lot stronger. You couldn't make these absurd loans to people that would never be able to repay. And um um. You know, and people became more aware of climate change, and they said, "Wow, you know, we just can't keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. There have to be more regulation and other fields as well." And I think during that time, I think the FDA was stricter. Yeah, um, the climate was different, and now the climate has changed. And I don't believe it's entirely a coincidence that the that the pace of approvals has improved, has has has, has uh, increased as well. Yeah, and I, I and I share your sort of view of the of the matter. I mean, there's no doubt about it that these drugs do add something, and and some of them are better than others. And yeah. there are certain, you know, we all have yeah. some that we we really right. think are are, right. are good. Right. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do see the FDA saying, "Look, look what a good job we've done. We've approved 38 sure. drugs in the last year." And I say, "That's not really the good metric by which you should be judging your performance." No, that's the funny thing. Yeah. Is that's it exactly? It's a number of the question is, "What are the drugs add?" Yeah, what are the drugs add? Yeah, right. I mean that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean. I think that's really true. And I think, you know, fear is, is that, well, two, one is that this trend will continue without any follow-up studies. Mm -hmm. um, and two is that eventually the climate will change back to more regulation. Yeah. And then you hope they don't go back to the old ways, which I was very critical of before. I remember five or six years ago saying, oh, well, you know, well, we never approve anything. You know, why don't we approve things? Why do they need, you know, what do they need? You know, why does the P value have to be 0.04998 instead of 0.051 or something? Right. I mean, why do we do this? So, you know, so I'm always critical. But, but you know, I think the idea is you, you do need people that are critical of the system. And, um, um, and I think uh, it's probably maybe always been this way in medicine. I choose to remember differently, but I think there's certainly something where younger people are afraid to criticize the system because they don't see any personal gain in it for them. I think it's a professional yeah. liability yeah, to think, them. Yes, yeah. I think it's a professional liability to them. And perhaps because I grew up in the 1960s where there was a time of tremendous uh, turbulence. turbulence. And, and there were, were real risks back then. Yeah, absolutely, where people questioned, you know, the segregation system in the South, where they questioned the Vietnam War. Um, um, uh, you know, they would occupy university buildings, um, you know, Columbia, yeah. Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was very influential for yeah. me. And um, I don't see that today. Now, you could say, well, the challenges are not quite as bad as they were then. Um, there's no Vietnam War. But um, but still, um, I don't see the the... the the critical thinking, the willingness to criticize that I think we, we, we need. Yeah, I think, I wonder, it is, um, I mean, I guess I, I guess I do agree that maybe the challenges are different. Um, 
Uh, but there are still challenges. And uh, But I do think that the pressures for conformity are stronger today than they've ever been. Um, and uh, the disincentives are strong. And, you know, I know many young people who, um, you know, are unwilling to come on this podcast and say what they think about some drugs or unwilling to, you know, write some papers um, because they're nervous that, you know, in their field. The other thing about oncology now is, of course, all, we're all sub-disease specialists mm -hmm. and they're unwilling to say, um, you know, drug company X's new approval is bad because what if they need to do an IIT with that company in a year from now? Sure. And, uh, and that's just not worth it to them. And what are they going to accomplish by saying that that drug approval is bad? The marketing people are going to ignore the paper and people are going to push it and very few people will read it perhaps. Right. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I understand that fear. And, and, and I think that's when you get older, I think that's one of the luxuries you have. I mean, there are many things you don't want to have when you get older. But, um, but I think a luxury you have is, is that whatever your career is, is basically complete. I mean, you've done certain things, and that's it, and um, uh, and there's less to lose. You can retire. You can't as easily retire when you're 50 or 40 um, as when you're 72. Um, and so I think older people have a, you know, a, a, a responsibility. I don't know responsibility, but I think it's easier for them to, to, to do this kind of thing. And I'd like to think, probably totally naively, that a pharmaceutical company would respect you more for doing this. Mm. And rather than just saying, we're never gonna do a study with him again, mm -hmm. maybe they would ask your advice more. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, but at this point in my life, I just don't want to um, sugarcoat it. Yeah, sugarcoat and not say what I think. And you do insult people. Like in this thing this morning, this guy came up to me and he said, wow, you know, my parents were FDA employees and, and you know, you were insulting them. And, you know, I feel bad about that. But, and, but that's the price you pay. You're going to make people um, unhappy. You're mm -hmm. gonna, you're, some people are not going to agree, maybe the majority. And, you know, now this really is going to be self-serving and it's going to really sound terrible. But, you know, I think all movements in history, and this is really absurd comparison, start with people where they're routinely criticized. So, you know, so I think there's really a need because a lot of times when people speak out about things, they may not change immediately, mm -hmm. but hopefully other people will hear them and pick up where they left off where they left off let me ask you about this idea um which i think has been captured to some degree with flit3 itd and with idh the idea that in a disease like aml we're going to be able to sequence everyone's genome their cancer genome we're going to find druggable alterations, we're going to drug those alterations, and we're going to achieve success, tremendous success. That's, a, I mean, it's a very popular belief. Um, and yet we see with the IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors, which are um, clearly aberrations that are important for oncogenesis, that you can drug those, and you will achieve CRs, but they are not as durable as you would have hoped. Right, and, and I think what happens is, and there's one of the examples in the talk, was they looked at 12, not that many people, at diagnosis and relapse before they got menacidinib. And what they found was that at relapse, there were signs that the 
drug was still working to suppress these 2-HG levels, which impaired differentiation. That was fine. But now other things had developed under the selective pressure of the treatment. And, you know, I think cancer cells probably undergo evolution, too. And, you know, and they're capable of adjusting, too. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a host response to cancer. And for these cells to survive, I mean, they've obviously have had to be very adaptable over time. And to pretend that they're not going to adapt to single-agent targeted therapy or double-agent targeted therapy, I don't think that's correct. Mm-hmm. And so um, at least in terms of single-targeted therapy, I think that's doomed. And, you know, the real secret is to combining these things quicker. You can combine them with chemotherapy. You can combine them with each other. Um, but I think to use them one at a time is, you know, not or a fool's error, not the right way to go. And of course, but then there are problems because I personally would probably start off, I would, okay, is it safe, you know, and then I would move right to the combination. I would have that written in the study to begin with. Uh-huh. You use the combination sooner, but of course that's going to require and, these, and, yeah, go ahead. these different companies to work together. Oh, well, well. And that's going to be problematic. But let um, me push you on this combination idea. In your opinion, um, would you support empirically driven combinations? If I know drug A is active, drug B is active, let's try it empirically. Uh, instead of the current model where um, people spend a great deal of time and a great deal of mice and cell cultures trying to generate some proof yeah, of synergy both. or something like that. Yeah. I do both. I mean, okay. you know, I think you really have to do both. And I think the emphasis is all on the mice. And um, I remember when I was young, and you can say, yeah, that was like in the ancient era, so it doesn't apply. I would read the rationale of the protocol, and I would be very impressed. And, but they routinely don't work. And I mean, so that's really cast a lot of doubt on my belief of the, of, of the rationale, and to me, it's the proof of the pudding is in eating, um, show me the money, all those things. Does it work clinically? And, you know, and it's very interesting because one of the things that happens is, and we're talking about testing many things, is that in Houston, um, many years ago, we had access to a lot of drugs. And we decided, well, we weren't smart enough to know which one to give the patient, so why don't we just randomize people among the different drugs? Mm-hmm. And they weren't randomized phase three studies, they were small randomized phase two studies. And people would say, well, yeah, Eli, you know, but the power, you know, is very low. You know, the power might only be, depending on how you set it up, might be only 40% or 50%. And they would say, well, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows you need 80% power. It's an underpowered study, famous words. And, but they didn't stop to think that if you have four drugs and you don't really know which one is best, then the chance that you really pick the right one is 25%. So your power is not 80%. It's 80% for that study, but uh-huh. it's 80% multiplied by 25%, uh-huh. which is less than the, you know, than the 40% that we start, that our thing would have. In other words, simply put, the worst false negative is never investigated at all because you think you're smart enough to know that that's right. But history would suggest that's not right. So we proposed this randomized study. We wrote a protocol. 
And um, but it turned out that the companies found that we were doing this, and they went to Dr. Antarchin, who was my chair, great supporter of, of me, and um, you know, and he came to me. He said, "You know, Eli, um, uh, the companies really would prefer us not to do this." And you know, silly me he said, "Well, yeah, wouldn't they want to know if the drug is good to begin with?" And he said. You know, for somebody who's supposed to be smart, you're really stupid because maybe they don't want to know this mm. because the idea is they want to get people to invest in the drug. And if it turns out that it didn't seem as good as some other drug, well, yeah. they're going to invest in the other drug. Uh-huh. And so... These were small well, biotechs, pl- you know. Yeah, okay. and, 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 you know, and so um, that idea was later taken by the MRC in the UK and they give us credit for it. And it, it's the play, the winner design, but they were smart. So what they said is we're just gonna run, we'll have a standard and we'll only test it versus one drug. So we'll do low dose RC versus uh-huh. drug A. Uh-huh. And if drug A is a loser, we'll move it out quickly and we'll I move see. in drug B. And so that idea that you don't need these huge, that it's better not to have these huge studies where there are, so you have this magic 80% power that it's better to just move on when it's, you know, when it's even if it's fairly clear because you have so many to test. And that I think is what you're getting at. So to me, um, that's a better way of looking at things. I see. And I would, that's how, what I would do. I would say I have combination AB, combination AC, combination AD, et cetera, et cetera, and randomize. Mm-hmm. But that's probably not practical. But mm-hmm. I think these are topics that deserve, that get so little attention. Of course. Because people are so fixed on this phase one to phase two to phase mm-hmm. three way of doing things. And as we mentioned, they never stop to think that maybe the phase one dose is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. And, or, I mean, a basic thing. I mean, they say, well, you know, okay, we've seen it hits the target. We have our optimal biologic dose, end of study. Well, maybe there's another target that they don't realize. And maybe you do need to increase the dose. Wouldn't it be interesting to look and do some kind of study where you looked at studies compared of a drug done at the OBD and at the same drug done at an MTD and see if the results were different. Mm-hmm. See, that's the kind of research that I think is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. But nobody's interested. Yeah. And um, Simple clinical questions. Right. Yeah. And um, they're not deep, but there's no support for them. You know, that to me is really sad. Yeah, I think you alluded to a few interesting things. Um, one, I think, is... You know, there's such a mismatch in these clinical trials. We're obsessed with these kind of terrible minutiae of clinical trials that may or may not be important. At the other hand, we're often not asking important questions or right. the correct questions. Right. And, and so it's like you're obsessed with the wrong details. Right. Um, I think you also kind of hit on this idea that the incentives for small biotechnology companies in cancer drug development, very different than large companies who have reputation and are replete players. Right. These small companies may have one or two products, right. and they have put all their eggs literally in the one basket and they need that product to look successful and they are unwilling to engage in research that could threaten the appearance of that product exactly and that is not good for patients it's certainly not good for researchers Um, and that's led to this kind of challenge you faced the last thing i kind of wanted to ask you about was conferences now, uh, I, I've seen you at some conferences from time to time. You like, you've asked questions of the speaker, um, uh, and sometimes they answer you, but not always. They don't always answer you. Um, 
that's not good when they can't answer you when you ask simple things or when someone asks simple things. Um, do you feel like in conferences that um, that some people, you know, we don't have to get into who, but some people are being pushed to present to large audiences and and maybe not entirely their fault, but the fault of people around them, they haven't had the adequate preparation that yes. they need. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I think, yes, I think that's, and I think pharmaceutical company studies are particularly liable to that. I mean, I think it's very difficult to be self-critical. Very, very difficult. It's people believe what they want to believe. And one of the things I find when you review papers, which I do a fair amount of, is that things that seem fairly basic aren't addressed. I mean, not not even, this is beyond the stage of ash or something. You know, um, they submit the paper. There are mm-hmm. things that they haven't addressed. Mm-hmm. And Blind spots. Of, right. I mean, if you get up there and say something to me that would seem so basic, um, what proportion of the eligible people um, were treated? I've only heard that in one study, and that was Dr. Stone. So that was a Mitosterin study. Mm-hmm. And everybody was screened for FLIP3, which was a condition for eligibility. Mm-hmm. This is the and cooperative then, group, yeah. uh, Assemblage Stephen Mitosterin. Yeah, 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 the ratified thing. And, yeah. um, um, and the way that it turned out was that something like 80% of the people with FLIP3 ITDs went on the study. Then the next question I asked, and he's probably my closest friend in medicine, very close friend. Um, we bond over sports. And the next question was, um, okay, were the people who didn't get this, obviously, in the placebo group, they got 7 plus 3, how did they compare with the people that got 7 plus 3 in placebo in the Mitosaurin study? Did they do the same? They, they didn't collect the data. They don't know. Because if they did worse, yeah. then you'd say, these people on the study are not totally represented. Of course, yeah. But couldn't answer the question, and not his fault. It's just nothing the company encouraged them to look at. Uh-huh. Because what you're pushing on is the selection bias, even in a randomized trial. Of who's course, put out right? of uh-huh. course. And uh-huh. then the question is not only that's leaving out the universe of people who are not eligible to begin with, which right. is one of the things that we talked about right. today, right. which in solid tumor studies, there's a November 2017 JCO issue that was largely devoted to that, and it was pointed out that in the Kaiser Permanente population, over half the people with um, lung and colon cancer, or maybe only half the people with breast cancer when they develop those cancers, qualified for clinical trials. Right. I think um, you know one of the points you were making that I thought was very astute was that you argued, um, and something that we've argued kind of in a different language, but the way you put it is you think almost all approvals should be conditional. Yes. And conditional, you mean, even if it's a randomized trial that's well done, well conducted, mm-hmm. robust benefit, there are a lot of people you didn't include in your study. Mm-hmm. And you have some obligation to answer this question for patients and for doctors and for everybody. Does your product work well in those other groups of people? Right. Now, you could say, I yes. Now, what somebody could say is, yeah, Eli, you know, you're really inconsistent because, okay, now you're saying you want this randomized trial, and nobody more than you would speak out about, I don't want to give somebody 7 plus 3, it stinks. So now you want to make them do that some more. And that's a very valid point. But what I would say is there are many ways to do randomized trials. And to me, maybe the best way is what people call adaptive randomization, where basically you say, okay, we put whatever, a few people in the study, and if it looks like one arm is much better than another, then we adjust the randomization probabilities. And we keep doing that repeatedly. 
And yes, it's true because you won't have equal numbers in each group. The power won't be this optimal. But it's to me, it's an effort between having a study that's perfectly balanced and one that pays some kind of uh, regard to what's going on in the actual study. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so but, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily require the study to be one to be one randomized, one to one. three to one, or maybe even better adaptively randomized when you change as you go on. But yeah, I do think there needs to be some kind of follow-up because the fear is, is that it will be used and no one will ever find out. Yeah, it's almost a, it's a certainty it will be used because doctors use things that are in the Absolutely. tool bag. Absolutely. Um, but I think I think the principle is no matter how you do it, the the sort of the philosophical principle is is that um, you know we need to ask and answer if this product works the same in people who didn't enroll mm -hmm. on the study. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we wrote a few years ago was we wrote a paper in JAM Oncology called Overall Survival as a Surrogate Endpoint. And our argument was very similar to your argument, which is that we think of response rate and EFS or PFS as surrogate endpoints. They stand in for what we care about. Right. But an overall survival in a idealized efficacy clinical trial of, of, of sort of um, very selected patients, that's a surrogate for the endpoint you care about in the real world population of people that you and I have to take care of, mm -hmm. um, and that we should treat it as sort of a conditional approval and mm -hmm. that sort of strategy. Yeah, no, I think I think the approval should be conditional, and um, because you know it's funny, and I just thought of this: is I mean, in science, one of the things is you have to repeat experiments, right? And so that's the least you can do. I mean, um, is to repeat it in a population that you didn't consider to begin with, right? Um, and I think that should be a requirement. And you made this point um, well during your talk that in Ratify, the Mitostorin study, there was an age eligibility criteria. You couldn't be over the age of, what was it, 60? Yeah. And uh, in the Serafinib 7 plus 3 trial, which is a negative study, um, the EFS benefit that we did see was only in the younger than 60 right. age group. Right. So the natural question is, when I have a 65-year-old patient who's coming to foot 3 ITD, getting induction therapy, and I'm reaching for mitostorin, which I think many, many doctors are, I don't have randomized trial data to support mm. that choice. No. I have this suggestion from right. the Serafinib study right. that maybe those people aren't benefiting. Right. Right. And there's no ongoing effort to answer that right. question. If you wrote a paper. Yeah. People would reject it in a minute. They'd say, what? There's no data. You're doing something without any data at all. Reject yeah. immediately. Mm -hmm. But this is what we do. This is what we do. This is what we do. And I don't think that's a very good idea. And you know, I think the FDA, never mind my thoughts about who should make these decisions, because people would say, yeah, maybe you're right, but, but you could say it maybe a little differently, but um, uh, maybe you're right, but, but it doesn't really matter because it's not going to change. But I think the FDA really should say, um, okay, we're going to require these follow-up trials. It mm -hmm. has to be conditional. Um, and yes, the counter-argument would be, okay, it's going to cost companies more money to make these, to do these trials. The drugs will be even more expensive. And yes, that's true. But to me, that's a small cost compared to giving things to people where you have no idea whether they work or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, another way to kind of think about it is, um, you know, in this country, we're spending a trillion dollars on healthcare at a national level. And a sizable chunk of that healthcare is on things like this, uncertain yeah. things. Yeah. Um, 
if you were running a business, if you're a corporation and you're the CEO of the corporation and you were spending this huge <laughs> yearly <laughs> spending. You'd want some accountability. You'd want some accountability. And yeah. you'd say, like, look, if we can sort out $100 million here, $20 right. million there, right. Um, right. with a simple study, right. it's in our incentive to do that. Because if we right. find that 20% of these things right. are not correct, we're going to save money. Right. Um, but of course, mm -hmm. you don't get that from bureaucracies. You made the point. Bureaucracies perpetuate bureaucracies. Yeah, exactly. They do. And, and, and particularly in the current climate. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow, if, if FDA is not going to allow Boeing to approve their own airplanes, <laughs> yeah. then well, what else are you going to expect? They're gonna not, there are not going to be very many questions asked. I think it's the next step is that companies will, will approve their own drugs. Uh, um, well, um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I know I enjoyed this. it. I like talking about it. I think they're really important issues. And um, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Of I, all I the things, it. of all the things you say, I think you know if there's one takeaway message because a lot of people listen to this are young uh, investigators. I think um, you know I have to echo your point, which is that what would I encourage them? I would say. Um, they should actually try to do a few projects by themselves. And these projects, they're not going to get published in New England Journal of Medicine. No. They're not going to be published no. in The Lancet. But that's okay because you learn much more yes, about you do. research. Um, yes, you do. When you try to ask one of these questions and yes, do it you yourself. Do. And you learn how the data is so difficult to interpret and how much data is missing. Um, you know, I mean, the patients didn't feel like coming back, so you don't know their survival time. There are all these things that that these answers are very, very capable of. There are no clear answers, mm -hmm. and um, yet so many things we'd like to believe there are clear answers to. Transplant is automatically better than chemotherapy, maybe, but you know, um, but still the same prognostic factors apply. Um, so the differences are much less than they're often felt to be. You see these conferences, and there are these people. Oh, he has to have a transplant, or you know, or no, it would be terrible. But the data really are not that compelling that you should really feel that strong one way or another. Yeah, can I want to ask you about this? You raised this point. I have forgotten about it, which was that um, um, when you look at a disease. If there's certain prognostic variables that matter, say, you know, certain side of genetic factors for an AML, of course, we know poor prognostic, good prognostic, okay. Um, you develop a novel therapy, um, and if, if in the face of that novel therapy, those prognostic factors remain prognostic, <laughs> as, and, and um, that's telling you something like um, that this therapy may be great, but it isn't transformative, no. um, and and it's it's quite in, it's quite an interesting thing. Like if transplant, which is supposed to be, you know, of course, this Grafford's leukemia effect. Yeah. Um, why should that distinguish among cytogenetics? Right. Uh, but yet it does. Right. Exactly. It, and the most obvious example is this MRD. So, it's known that if you have MRD going into transplant, it makes things much worse, and. But what is MRD? Yeah, yeah, what does MRD say? MRD says MRD says the chemotherapy was not optimal. Yeah. So suboptimal chemotherapy leads to suboptimal transplant and vice versa. Better chemotherapy leads to better transplants. So what are we missing? Yeah. As you point out, there's this GVL, but something is being lost. And what that is, I don't think anyone knows. But I think it's something to consider, you know, in our conferences, you have these back and forth arguments, oh, you know, and it, it's not that clear cut. And, you know, and it's, you know, there's this 
movie, I really liked Annie Hall, and basically um, uh, the Woody Allen character says, you know, it's like the difference between the horrible and the miserable or something <laughs> like that. And it, it's, you know, it's what it really is. I mean, you're arguing about things that really are, the real question is, can either be made better, not right. which is Best. And that's true with these randomized studies, like we were saying in Europe. Okay, so we're going to spend 600 patients four years to see if 7 plus 3 is better than 10 days decided being in older people with AML. Fine. But the truth is, that is that really the comparison you really – is that what the question you really care about? Isn't the question can either be made better? And to spend that much effort to do this I not wouldn't be my idea what hmm. I would want to do. Well – I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Okay, it's been a pleasure sure. To have you. Yeah, I'll and, be curious to hear myself speak. Oh yeah, well we'll send you we'll send you the link, <laughs> and uh, I think it'll be of great interest uh, to the audience. I hope so. You know, um, uh, there have been. Um, uh, I just wanted a few listeners to know um, we've got a few listeners of Dana Farber who I have a great deal of respect <laughs> for. Um, but one of the things that we got in a little uh, disagreement about was the venetoclax approval, and uh, I just want the record to state that no. um, that. Dr. Dr. Esty is uh, shares my criticism of it. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's an interesting drug. Mm-hmm. Nobody could gainsay that, but I think to be blind to some of these points is, you know, is 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 optimal. Um, and yeah, I could certainly see how patients would want to get it. It's an exciting drug, and you know, would I have approved it? I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that I would have. Condition the approval on answering some of these questions. Yeah, and uh, in the Videoclax case, it I guess there is a conditional approval. One thing that interestingly happened What's yesterday. It, it's conditional on randomized control trial of Venetoclax Aza. Okay. Yeah, yeah, plus or minus uh, Aza plus or minus Venetoclax. But then the question is, of who course. are the patients uh, and are they unfit? Well, then this kind of thing. Yeah, so. it needs a, another condition, which is to test it beyond. Right. And just yesterday, we had FDA put a hold on a Venetoclax trial, which oh, is Venet- myeloma. myeloma. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, increased death despite the fact better responses and better PFS but yet almost a doubling of death. Right. Uh, so we'll see what shakes out there. I think venetoclax is interesting because, um, you know, everybody uh, has some preclinical rationale for why they want to test it in their cancer. And, and that just has to do with the fact that BCL2 is sort of... Yeah, every uh, cancer. Every cancer, yeah. Right. When all the pathways feed to BCL2, right. you can make a justification. So, you know, um, for these drugs that hit um, parts of molecular uh, cascades that are ubiquitous or shared widely, those drugs are going to get tested everywhere. Um, right. Absolutely. Similarly, you I know, mean, in the years after imatinib, uh, people tested imatinib. People, we forget, but we tested imatinib. A lot and of things. A lot of things. Solid tumor, you know, irrational things. Uh, to my knowledge, only two or three things ever had yeah. rationale. Yeah. No, I think, to me, I just cannot believe that something that targets one thing, BCL2, is ever going to cure AML. I just don't believe the AML cell is that stupid. I don't believe that it's that evolutionary simple. Simple. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Essie. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Pleasure was mine. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.